Hello and welcome to Yes to You, the Lifeways podcast. Lifeways is the UK's largest team of support professionals who provide support for adults in the community. I'm Paul Crompton, Marketing and Communications Manager and Podcast Host, and I'm speaking to Richard Cunningham, Service Development Director at SIL, which operates 24 supported living services across the country. SIL is part of Lifeways. Each of these SIL services supports adults living in the community who are severely affected by mental ill health. Many have come from secure facilities or long-stay hospitals. Prior to SIL, Richard has a long background in working with homeless or at-risk people. Richard, welcome to Yes to You. Morning, Paul. Hi. Thank you very much indeed. Great. Let's get started and let's start simple. Uh, How would you describe SIL in one sentence? Um, so SIL, basically, we, as you've already said, we're a, uh, an organisation who provides supported living. So that's basically we have um, flats that we, we operate in, in partnership with a, a, an RSL, which is a social landlord, and we provide support to individuals there 24-7. So a typical service would have, say, 12 to 16 flats. Each individual living there would have their own tenancy. Um, they could come and go as they please. But on site, we have a team of mental health support staff supported by a well-trained manager and deputy and by our quality and practice team. And their job is to basically provide support, to help individuals develop the skills to, 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 to grow in confidence and, uh, and their abilities to live with greater independence. What we're, we're trying to do really is help people sort of, you know, sort of become accustomed to living back in the community to look at how they can sort of keep themselves well, healthy, etc. But also above all, sort of realise the kind of things they want to do, you know, sort of ambitions in terms of sort of developing social networks, friendship groups, you know, hobbies, you know, and and ultimately, ideally, we want to help people, you know, sort of, you know, move on from us, get jobs, you know, have family, anything really, the sky's the limit really is, you know, it's what these individuals want to do. So our role really is to, or our support workers role is to walk alongside these individuals, not to, 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 to lord it over them in any way, but to help them, you know, understand and develop their own capabilities, basically, uh, and to, to, to ideally live more, you know, fulfilling lives. In our context, what does um, being severely affected by mental ill health mean or, or coming from secure facilities or long stay hospitals? Our target audience is, so to speak, the people we're looking to, to, to really sort of reach out to and try and provide support to are individuals who've been in hospital maybe for a considerable period of time, who've been, as it says, severely affected by mental ill health. They've had long periods of mental you know, mental unwellness. Um, these are individuals who may also have been, by virtue of their mental ill health, they may have come into contact with the criminal justice system. You know, They may have been involved in, in crimes you know, as a result of that have been linked to their mental ill health. And as such, these are individuals for whom um, there there may be a sense that your more traditional support in the community isn't really sufficient. And I think one of the interesting things I always felt when I came to, to, to work in mental health was having come from a homelessness background where there was an awful lot of work looking at pathways, looking at how to prepare people to go back into the community. An awful lot of effort was put in as a result of various government policies around sort of trying to sort of effectively get people off the streets. What was what was strange and a bit surprising to me was actually the fact that they, these pathways didn't really seem to exist so clearly um, in the world of mental mental health, really. So still as an organization set out to try and address some of the, 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 those those disparities really looking to see if we could provide a, a, a form of support that would 
be able to support people who perhaps had you know you know more profound um you know, sort of Ill- illnesses who had these risks possibly attached to them by virtue of you know having been um th- through the moj pathway and so on and this was as much about our ability to support them as about to give about us being able to give the confidence to to commissioners and so on that we had the competence and skills to support these individuals properly because it's not always just about necessarily supporting the individual and helping them to stay well in the community it's also about potentially being able to spot when people are becoming less well and being able to therefore take effective action to ensure that other agencies are brought together so that the individual receives correct treatments, etc. And, you know, any potential risks that might have been posed by them becoming unwell, um, you know, a relapse into previous offending behaviour, for example, can be, can be averted, really. So that, that, you know, that is kind of what we set out to do, really. But it, it was more driven by a realisation that a, a large group of individuals who were almost being underserved by the current mental health pathways and were stuck in hospital and out of area placements because it wasn't seen that there was the right kind of support and provision out there. So we set out to become experts of what we do, to become really competent in, in, in supporting individuals, helping them to achieve their goals and aspirations, but also in helping to, to create the right kind of um, environments and structures, I mean, and non-physical structures around them that would keep them safe, but also keep, you know, sort of the, the wider community um, safe and secure as well. So if I'm someone that's supported by SIL, uh, what what makes my life different living at SIL or, or living being supported by SIL uh, as opposed to, uh, let's say, being supported by many other providers that may be out there? I mean, we're a recovery-based organisation, so we're very much, you know, driven by hope and the belief that individuals can develop the skills to be, to, to to enjoy a greater level of independence and, you know, uh, independent living and more fulfilling lives. Um, I think really, you know, where we differ is, you know, we really set out to understand what makes our individuals tick um, and to make sure that our staff teams are trained and supported to understand who they're working with and to do so in a way that's empowering and and person-centered. But above all, so, you know, we spend a lot of time developing our assessment process so that when people come to us and refer to us, we spend a lot of time getting to understand them talking to them directly, but talking to those people around them, families, care teams, etc., to understand what's making the individual tick, to understand the context. For example, we have a lot of individuals who come to us with, you know, significant histories, uh, 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 you know, that, that involve, you know, the Ministry of Justice, offending behaviour, etc. For example, we have something in the region of 33% of the, our, our residents or our, the people we support have a fire setting history or you know, a conviction for arson, if you want it in more blatant terms. And you know, obviously that poses quite a significant issue for, 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 for housing providers in the community and so on. And what we do is really to try to understand the individual and above all, understand the context in which certain things may have happened. You know, were they ill at the time? What were what were some of the, the potential triggering factors? You know, what do, what are the things we need to look out for in the future to to help keep this individual safe? And above all, what do we need to do if someone becomes starts to become unwell? How, who do we need to involve in terms of pulling things back together again, basically, and making sure that we can get help to that individual quickly? So, we spend a lot of time developing our assessments so that we understand people, we understand what it is they want, we understand 
the histories. We understand how, how we can help them stay well. And we spend a lot of time training our staff to be able to understand that as well, to be able to understand the recovery plans and risk assessments that are put together as part of our assessment processes. And through our quality and practice team, which is a, a, a team of per, well, peripatetic mental health professionals, so we have mental health nurses, social workers, OTs, and so on, who support our teams through training, reflective practice, um, uh, and supervisions to understand and to put into effect the, the plans that, the, that we're developing with individuals to support them. Uh, and I think that's kind of where we're, we're successful. We really do understand who, 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 you know, who who's coming to us. We understand how they want to be supported and how best we can support them and you know above all we have you know the ability to understand you know what it is we need to do to help keep them well. So people we support at SIL have their own tenancies uh, but how does this fit in with them receiving support? In other words who pays what? Yeah as you said um, our schemes are generally sort of between 12 and 16 self-contained flats. Uh, we run these in, in partnership with a housing association and individuals do have their their own tenancies. And that's part of the deal, basically. When people come to us, we want them to have their own high quality accommodation. Because actually, I see that very much as being part of that road to recovery. Um, we have developed some really attractive um, um, services um, and part of it really is to inspire hope in individuals you know the idea that when they cross the threshold and they get the keys to their house this really marks a red line in the, you know where you know everything that went before was before and actually this is this is a whole new horizon you know there's there's hope here so people will walk into their flats and they are beautiful flats and my hope is in the words of the l'oreal advert you know that they'll, they'll look at that and say oh, well i'm worth this really and it's the idea about reflecting back to people that they are they are you know that they're worth this flat and so on and actually that life you know life could offer opportunities to them really so so yes everyone has their own their own um, tenancy and effectively, that's paid through housing benefits. So it's paid through people's, you know, benefits, allowances, and so on. Um, uh, and you know, that money is paid to the housing association; doesn't come to us. Um, and basically, we provide support um, within the services. We have a staff hub there um, at sleeping facilities, and that's paid through sort of contracts with health and social care. Right. So in this particular case, uh, so in the case of people who, who are supported by SIL, uh, the, the tenancy is in a sense linked to the support that they receive. So, for example, the person we support wouldn't like move across town to like, let's say, a house somewhere and, and then we would we would deliver support there. I mean, how does that work? No, I mean, there, that is a model, obviously, in general, that's kind of called floating support where you have a support team visiting, um, you know, visiting someone's home and so on. No, I mean, in our instance, basically, we're, we, you know, we individuals are coming to us very often from long stay hospital placements, um, you know, uh, residential care, etc. The support is very much tied to the accommodation. And, and the idea basically is that people will stay in the scheme for a period of time, receive support, and then at a point where you know they feel ready to move on they'll move on to you know to hopefully you know sort of further accommodation further independent accommodation elsewhere our you know our support doesn't necessarily go outside of that setting i mean i, I say that on occasion we have delivered some elements of support and you know, as I speak, actually, we're also experimenting with delivering support in the community um, as part of a step down project from our service Moore House in Hereford. Um, we, we were invited there by the local authority to, to provide support to six independent tenancies in the community. Um, 
uh, three of which are occupied by form, former um, tenants of ours, but three are also from uh, individuals coming from another, another setting. So that is a, a bit of a new venture for us. But traditionally, our, our support is tied to the services that we run in conjunction with our housing association partners. Right. I think I remember um, 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 writing about the case of an individual who's moved into one of those Hereford services. And uh, essentially, in my understanding, um, the, the, the council or the local authority had built or had been involved in the construction of the property, uh, of the different properties. So how did how did that work? No, it was a great, I mean, a really great opportunity and kind of lovely. I mean, one of the hardest things of all is finding people move on accommodation, really. When people come to us, the, the, one of the more, most difficult things, you know, as we know, generally, you know, housing is is, is an issue for, for huge parts of society. So, you know, um, you know, people people are moving on, they're waiting on housing lists, et cetera, or possibly going to the private private rented sector. But, I mean, this was a great opportunity, really, in that the strategic housing um planner officer for Hereford County Council had, had working with one of their um, local providers, Connexus Housing Association, who were developing a, a mixed tenure estate um, just in Her- just inside Hereford. Um, as part of that development, she she had negotiated that six of six houses, and they are they are one bedroom houses. So it's quite an unusual thing. I don't you don't often see one bedroom houses, but they are over two floors. They have a garden. They come with a garden shed. Um, Basically, she'd secured six of these four individuals with, you know, sort of, you know, um, you know, histories of, of complex mental health, uh, you know, problems and so on to, to move out into the community, really. And we were lucky enough to, to, to get three of our chaps into this scheme, uh, as well as being offered the opportunity to, to run the support there, really, as well. So it's been in its early days and we've, we've been doing it for the last two and a half months. But so far, um, I have to say, working in conjunction with local mental health and social service teams, it's been a great success. We had a, a really interesting meeting the other day, just catching up on the first two and a half months. And I think everyone concerned just said how successful it's been, really. And so, and and certainly the, the chaps uh, 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 and, and girls who've moved in are, are, are so far very happy. So it's something that I'm keen to see us do more of, really, because one of the things I've always felt is that having done resettlement when I was in a, in a different part of my life um, many years ago, you can see people drop off a bit of a cliff edge when they move from one provider to the next. So the, certainly the ability for us to follow the three guys from Morehouse into the community and keep that consistent support going has been good for them. And it's been actually really enjoyable for us. Right. And is there a support threshold at SIL? So, for example, are there people who whose needs would be lower or, 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 or people that we wouldn't support because they wouldn't be at our level? Are there people whose 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 needs are more severe than we could support part of our assessment process is to ascertain whether we can genuinely support somebody now part of that might be saying actually the level of support we provide is 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 too much this this individual doesn't need to come to effectively a a a a a, a, a residential setting i mean they have their own flats but they are in a community with support on site and we might say that that's that's too much that could in fact debilitating for somebody at the other end of the scale um yes there'll be people who may not be quite ready yet to to, to come and you know we we we're very optimistic you know, we, we try to be a very optimistic organization looking for how we can support people rather than why we shouldn't support people which is why you know as i said before we have you know 30 percent of the individuals 
have a fire setting history have you know further 30 percent of people come from the moj with a history of you know sort of you know sort of offenses that put them in the moj pathway um significant numbers of people with offenses that include you know sort of violence assault murder etc um you know, we try to be optimistic, but there, are, you know, there are certain things that will say that individuals may not be necessarily ready for us. So that would be part of the assessment. There's no hard and fast rule on that. You know, as I say, we look to include everybody, but it's a question about looking at their their history, looking at, um, you know, current behaviours. You know, a very simple one might be: Does this has this person had unescorted leave if they've been in hospital? And if they haven't had unescorted leave, then possibly that's something that needs to happen before they start considering the step down process. Um, but it's it's also very much about where they see they're at as well, really. So you know, um, you know, if someone's not showing a kind of awareness or a desire to, to to engage with with services and so on, possibly it's not quite the right time for them. So I, you know, I would say there's no hard and fast criteria for exclusion. What we try to do is include everybody, but it is very much about a, that holistic assessment process that tries to help us understand how we would support somebody, what the risks might be, and how we would mitigate those risks. Right. And can you think of any really positive examples of how SIL has made someone's life better uh, and perhaps even helped transform it? Well, I think, I mean, there are a number. I mean, you mentioned the chap you wrote about the other day, and there's a lovely story there. But the one that kind of sticks in my mind was someone who came to us very early on in our, um, you know, we set out and I think use the word journey. I'll punch myself for that later. Um, but, you know, years ago, a young lady came to us in our service in, in Exeter, and she had a very lengthy history of inpatient admissions. She had a diagnosis of, I think, EUPD, um, and she engaged in a lot of self-harming behavior. She used to swallow things. I mean, you mentioned at the start of this, your fear of swallowing the teaspoon, where she used to swallow things like toothbrushes and so on. Sorry, just to cut in here. So uh, t- to our listeners, uh, that was uh, we had a quick debate before the recording of this podcast about uh, about whether or not you make a cup of tea and leave the teaspoon in the cup. Um, and, and as you probably gathered, I'm not of that. Uh, I'm not of that persuasion. But uh, but Richard is. And uh, and also just to clarify, um, in w- when you say EUPD, you're referring to emotionally unstable personality disorder, formerly known as borderline personality disorder. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct, Paul. And and, and yes, and listeners will realise that I am much more of a risk taker than Paul is, and I'm not too worried if that spoon's sticking in my eye. I see that as the risk worth taking for that cup of tea. Um, although possibly I'd be you know, sort of wiser to take it out and avoid any kind of injury in the first place. But yes, so yes, um, you're quite right, Paul. Personality disorder. So th- this young lady, you know, had this lengthy history. Um, uh, had had come to us, you know, uh, you know, it's fair to say, I think, you know, uh, her, 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 you know, her, 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 you know, she, she'd you know, experienced a great deal, you know, as a result of her illnesses and so on. However, with us and remarkably quickly, um, she started to sort of turn a corner. Um, and shame, I was looking, she sent a letter to the manager of the scheme recently, which I was looking for because I managed to lose it somehow, I don't know. But it was really touching, particularly early on, because it made us feel like we were actually, you know, setting, you know, doing the things we set out to do. And basically it recounted how, you know, she felt when she came to Sill. And then the kind of changes. And, and one of the interesting things was, it, it Richie said, you know, at a point I realised that the only person who can really drive the change was me. And that's absolutely correct. See, we can't make people do things. And it, it's not in our power to make people do things. What we can do is create the right environment where people can feel 
that they're developing the skills and above all developing the confidence to do things for themselves and that for me was the bit that stood out in her letter um and she she'd moved on and you know to the best of my knowledge is still living happily i mean she's going to university um she moved in with her boyfriend who i think we'd known whilst at the service and so on and we'd been very supportive um but basically wrote to say that still had been you know had had a really positive impact on her life and her ability to sort of move forward uh, I, I know just lovely the fact that you know this is a young woman getting on with life doing things exciting living the life that kind of you know we'd all hope that our children you know would lead going to university having a partner you know having that having a home and just doing stuff and not in and out of hospital and not you know sort of you know swallowing toothbrushes and so on you know and, and hurting herself and how long this individual um, lived at Sill? It's actually it all happened rather quickly, really, which I, I attribute to her her skills rather than you know. I, I, yeah, I think that's a lot, well. I think it's about the support we gave her, but I think it's also about you know. I, I met her, and she was you know she was she was a resourceful, intelligent young woman, basically. So I, I also you know we can't can't say it was all down to us. I think it was also down to her, but she was with us for about nine months. I think before moving on, so but quite a profound change, really. So one that you know, I you know, I think we can we can justifiably take some credit for uh, alongside her, which we we would do with all our all our people we support. Basically, it's not just us; it's us working with them, um, and then working with us. And I'm going to guess that the the average, um, not that we can really say there's an average, but if we had to tot it all up, uh, the average person who is supported by a SIL um, probably lives in a SIL service a bit longer than nine months. Is that right? We, you know, we work and plan from day one for people to move on. What we do say is ours is not a permanent, it's not permanent accommodation and so on. But we want, obviously, we want people to treat it as their home. And the way I've always explained explained it uh, to others, and this goes back also to my days in homelessness. You know, um, running a program for the government that was re, you know, sort of refurbishing or redeveloping hostel facilities, is we want to create environments that, that are really attractive and inspire hope in individuals. And we've been very successful doing that. Very often the criticism comes, but they won't want to move on because actually very often what's out in the community isn't as good and my retort to that has always been and i still hold it is that um the house i grew up in um was much nicer than the house that i then moved into because my my father was relatively well off and it was home and all the rest of it and i didn't have to pay the bills but ultimately as much as i loved my dad i was happy to move on because it was my own place and so on and i didn't have dad that you know i didn't have to you know make excuses when i you know came home um half cut from the pub and so on <laughs> so you know the, the the reality is ultimately you know we don't want to be living with mum and dad as 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 lovely as as lovely as the you know as the house might be so people will always move on when they feel it's ready for the right time for them to do so because they want to spread their wings and, and get out and enjoy it and you know enjoy their independence so i'm confident that you know the quality of accommodation is not a bar um people do you know so i say we we support people for as long as they feel is necessary um Ironically, you know, uh, it, it, there used to be a kind of standard support length of time in, in the old days of supporting people and so on, which is about, I think, if I remember rightly, 18 months. And by that stage, you know, chair, uh, you must have affected change. People must be moving on. That was always a bit of a nonsense, but you have to set a bar somewhere. You have to set a target somewhere, I believe, or I, I suppose. Um, ironically, that seems to be roughly what how long people stay with us, about 18 to 22 months. And, and, and very lastly, um, can you think of anything you've learned uh, while at SIL? that you really feel is worth sharing uh, with commissioners, funders or family members or uh, or individuals that we might support? Yeah, I, I mean, there is. There is. I mean, you know, as I said earlier on, um, we set out to become experts in what we do. And I think one of the things that's important also is recognise, I mean, and we, as an organisation, as I said before, we don't 
we see ourselves as working alongside the people we support recognizing them as experts in 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 their experience as well really and so you know it's very much a partnership um I, I, yeah, I, I want to kind of reflect. It's interesting. Adam in his um, uh, his podcast the other day was reflecting on sometimes some of the tensions that you might get with commissioning environments and so on. And I think one of the things, particularly as we move into a new phase in the NHS with integrated care systems and so on, um, and again the words like partnership and so on going on, is is to to emphasise. I think. We achieve our successes when we work in partnership with people, and uh, you know, and that means working in partnership with the individuals we support, but also with um, uh, our colleagues in health and social care, and with families and significant others of the people we support, and so on, and with other wider partners such as the police, emergency services, and so on, community services. That's when we're really successful because we're supporting people in the community, and actually, we can only do that by creating, you know invisible but structures around them that help the individual feel safe um, themselves and so on and so i would say you know the thing i've learned is to recognize that everyone in the room you know brings with them expertise and if we did that and looked at things more as partnerships um going forward then probably we'd all benefit right and thanks for partnering with me to produce this podcast richard uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you well, uh, cheers, Paul. It's been, as always, a pleasure to speak to you. I hope it made sense. Absolutely. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in to this episode of the STU. If you want to know more about SIL and the work SIL does, please web search for SIL and Lifeways. We'll be releasing new episodes all about adult supported and residential living every month. So if you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast. See you next time. <laughs>